You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. another episode of the RN Mentor Podcast. I am extremely honored today to be joined by Dr. Jing Wong. Uh, She is the Dean and Professor of the the Florida State University College of Nursing and Adjunct Professor in Biomedical Informatics and Public Health at the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. She serves as a Board of Trustees at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and HCA Florida Capital Hospital. Uh, She's committed to nursing workforce development and high-tech, high-touch approach in nursing education, research, and collaborative practice. Dr. Wang is also devoted to diversity, equity, and inclusion in academic and clinical nursing setting as president of the Asian American Pacific Islander Nurses Association, board of directors at National Coalition of Ethnic Minority Nurses Association, the National Institute of Nursing Research Council Working Group on Diversity, and AARP Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Future of Nursing Campaign for Actions, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Steering Committee. Among the many accolades of Dr. Wong, I'd like to highlight she is an elected fellow of the American Academy of Nursing and a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Nurse Faculty Scholar. As a health an Aging Policy Fellow and American Political Science Association Congressional Fellow. She was a Senior Scientific Advisor to Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality and works with Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology as a Senior Policy Advisor. Dr. Wong, received her MSN and PhD from the University of Pittsburgh School of Nursing, MPH from its Graduate School of Public Health, and Graduate Certificate in Clinical and Translational Science from its School of Medicine. Dr. Wong's full bio and link related to this podcast uh, will be available on the RN Mentor podcast website, so please take a look. And with that said, welcome to the show, Dr. Wong. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Um, uh, You are doing a lot. And for our listeners, that was an abbreviated bio. Uh, How do you, uh, well, before we get into how do you do all this, how did you get started in the world of nursing? Yeah, so I actually wanted to become a dentist (laughs) to start with. But I think at the time, um, I, I was born in mainland China and uh, there was a huge push for university-based undergraduate nursing program. And I was in that initial cohort of people who were volunteer to choose majors and they put all of us in the inaugural nursing school there. And um, so that's how I ended up in nursing. And I fell in love with nursing, um, started a lot of volunteer nursing 
um, leading some nursing student groups in the community with homebound seniors. Uh, really interesting, just kind of serve, serve patients and serve the community. And I saw for advanced education. That's how I end up at the University of Pittsburgh and the best place to study a concept that I was really puzzled with. Those seniors would show me their medication box and say, I'm not taking it. And so it's a problem that we know hypertension or high blood pressure can be controlled so well with medication. However, our patients are not taking them. So really Pittsburgh was the best place to study medication adherence. And I fell in love with how lifestyle actually is better than medication in preventing or delaying the onset of type two diabetes. So I was studying, oh, then how can I try to promote people to adopt a healthy lifestyle, healthy eating and exercise for their chronic disease management, such as obesity, diabetes, and hypertension, and went into the whole areas of maybe technology can help. Mm. And uh, the key concept of self-monitoring um, can help people become aware of what they do and can help change their behaviors for better. Um, that was before the age of smartphone. We were studying different electronic diaries. For those of you who know what PDA is, a personal digital assistant at the time, um, how that actually makes self-monitoring easier and more helpful to help people lose weight and um, better control their type 2 diabetes. So that was my whole area starting in nursing. Uh, was a quick BSN to PhD program, really interesting research and leveraging research to really impact how, how we look at our patients. And that's why I went into public health and clinical and translational science a little bit because some of the research we're conducting, um, we had that number 17 years. On average, it took 17 years to translate these right. things that we learn from research into practice. So how can we shorten that gap? And I think nurses being the most trusted and largest healthcare professionals that we take pride in what we can do for patients. And I really into how can we leverage technology to support patient behavior change and started the whole area of working with more underserved population as I launched my independent career as a junior faculty at University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston, was really fell in love with how the power of those smartphones, which my senior patient had never used, can really change their diabetes control in a short six months. Really saves a lot of dollars because these people are getting their legs amputated and losing eyesight and getting cardiac surgeries at millions of dollars, yet simple low-cost technology can help prevent that from happening. See the power of how we can leverage technology to support underserved populations. And later um, was um, studying more with in San Antonio with the rural and Hispanic population find similar things. And, so really passionate about being a nurse and in supporting underserved communities and minority populations in how they can leverage technologies, not just for the rich and wealthy and others who love fancy technology actually provides a very um, effective solution for those who suffer from chronic conditions. So that's, that's a little bit. 
<laughs> uh, no, no, that, it's amazing because so many times we find uh, nurses feeling uh, helpless because they are on the receiving end of once the patient has a chronic condition and they're hospitalized. And that's when we do a lot of our one-on-ones. So the work that you're doing and you have been doing uh, with the use of technology uh, and empowering patients, so they are not ending up on the acute side of uh, the spectrum and us having to take care of them, whether it's for any condition, most conditions are preventable. Um, so I think I need a technology that's going to knock the cake out of my hand. Uh, I think I need somebody to develop that for me. So <laughs> I believe there is already one out there. <laughs> I need to get that something like I open my smartphone and the hand comes out and knocks the cake out of my hand. That's what I need. <laughs> Uh, so, um, I want to ask you a, a quick question. So you did your undergraduate work in, in mainland China. Um, and then you came over to the U S, uh, for your, uh, was it a BSN to PhD program? Um, how was that transition for you, uh, coming from, uh, mainland China to the U S and what was that education transition experience for you like? Yeah, I actually also did one year master study in between. Okay. Uh, did, didn't get a degree. Yeah. It was a top uh, master program in China. Finished all the coursework and um, actually proposed a, a master thesis study already. And I decided to take this opportunity. Um, at the time, University of Pittsburgh has received a major funding uh, mm. focus on the air, exactly the area that I'm interested in. So I can't really resist this opportunity to um, be a BSN to PhD student, but in the meantime, be a graduate student researcher in this NIH funded research center. Um, I would say the educational um, experience, um, you know, English was certainly uh, challenging at the time. I feel like I was having difficulty ordering food <laughs> and uh, just general, uh, you know, life skills is kind of disabled in a way. Um, I I was actually the president of English Association during my undergrad uh, okay. when I was in China. Um, I think I probably on the better side, but still when the culture and language, all the barriers exist. And I just felt every time I'm still thinking and then people already move to the next topic. Uh, so that happened to me a lot. But I think I had really strong foundation on the uh, I would say a solid foundation on the basic nursing knowledge and skills. And also um, in, during the master program that I did in China, very um, solid foundation on research skills, statistics, solve this um, literature search. So the courses actually became quite simple for me as the first one or two years of the BSN to PhD program in terms of content. But it gave me this time to really practice English. Um, and so I, I think that really helped me. And also what's different is that, you know, it was mainly didactic um, training during the BSM program. And same thing for the MSM program, you know, for the first year. And I got a chance to, you know, just be in a BSM to PhD program. There were a lot of the word renowned philosophy class, so much thinking and discussion and being exposed to just what I describe as the ocean of knowledge 
across the entire University of Pittsburgh. Um, and also um, what I describe across the street, Carnegie Mellon University and not just in nursing. So I, I, I really kind of enjoy that kind of learning that helped me to think and to think deep in an area that I'm interested in studying in nursing. And I think that kind of really also provided me the foundation of knowledge for research and understanding science, how to generate good science. And with all of that, I think it's very different. Of course, the undergrad and graduate program are different, but I think, um, you know, knowledge has no boundary. And I, I don't feel like from the knowledge perspective, there's too much difficulty in, in this transition. But I just think everything worked out so perfectly that the first one or two years really helped me with, you know, that language and cultural adaptation. Of course, you know, it's not like a quick fix in a couple right. of years and it kind of lasted the whole 15, 20 years until now, but still um, that that little bit of time really helped me with kind of um, just giving me time, not that both the content and English kind of poured on me all together. So I, I think if anything, I would say that's the only thing I noticed. <laughs> yeah, um, it's interesting. I mean, this is a concept that I've struggled with over the years because there's so many universities that put the weight on English writing skills and English proficiency. And I know that hampers some of our students that are international students, whereas English is second language, and they don't have the knowledge is there. It's that piece of you're making English the criteria, right, for being able to do the work in a master's or, or doctoral level work. Um, and you're now in a position where you are a dean of a of a of a school of nursing. Um, how do you how do you when we talk about things like you know holistic admissions and things like that? How do you deal with uh, what I would call maybe admission bias when we impose things like writing skills uh, in for like students who are English as second language? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. Um some basic skills are really critical and required, uh, I think in majority of schools for, for a reason. And I think, although what I describe as language kind of barrier, I feel like there are, at least I can understand when I, you know, take more time, but if there's no way, or if, you know, there there's too much, there's no understanding, I do feel like there needs to be certain criteria how high the criteria need to be I think it it's up for discussion and I think that's also how a holistic admission process can help where you can look at the individual or you can for example what we're doing is we have recordings from the individual we want to make sure I think is that we can communicate right that is core, uh, unless the person has a full-time translator during the whole study lens, I do feel like um, setting some criteria is important um, to, to make sure 
um, the current program as it's designed is purely in English in the U.S. Right. Um, that we can, you know, take students who can actually take advantage of the program that we design. But overall, for the whole concept of holistic admission, I think it's really critical. I had the opportunity to work with experts in this area when I was at University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio and our associate dean for student uh, affairs really is the expert uh, in this area of holistic admissions, especially in a Hispanic serving institution where we were. Um, it's critically important. And I also emphasize in, in my current college that we have made some changes in this area. Um, there are certain individuals that may not have the resources or opportunities to, to get to where we set our high bar uh, right. to be. And they may have the ability to learn and excluding those individuals may not be at the best interest for the program. So we have adopted quite a, a few changes in our program that we, we believe strongly that can really support the diversity of the program and having the holistic admission you know, process. We're still adopting that as we go, but just um, to really look at this process and look at those individuals who aspire to become a nurse, uh, in in the time where we have a critical nursing shortage. So we end up lowering our GPA uh, requirement. We did a environmental scan across all of the schools in the state of Florida. And we also looking to developing, you know, pipeline programs and reach out to pre-nursing students, provide student success support. Um, of course, also training our faculty to better understand what is holistic mission, what's our mission to support the society. And also we have book club um, to uh, the faculty get together. Uh, we have a book, how to work with, um, you know, challenging students or, or students who are from different background or training or life experience. So I think it's, it's a whole, when I look at it, it's not just holistic admission. Um, it is also looking at how we kind of design our program to really look at what eventually we would like to have as a nurse. What is the competency we were talking about as a nurse? And how can we set criteria to support the people to meet our needs and prepare them to be competent as they graduate and can enter the workforce and can have a seamless transition for that. Great, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, you you mentioned you know uh, again the the diversity of the workforce. Um, what is nursing not doing enough of? Uh, to diversify the workforce because we've been talking diversity for feels like forever over the last few years with the future of nursing report and all that it seems like it's gotten a little bit of a more of a push uh, we're seeing like um, uh, associate deans of equity diversity inclusion kind of pop up everywhere which is fantastic I think it's great um, but what do you think um, we're not doing because we're still so underrepresented in uh, in the underrepresented populations that we're that we're serving, um, and you know uh, we're making a little bit of headways, but I think you know 
uh, for the most part, we are the needle has not moved that much in diversifying the workforce. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I think in my role as the president of Asian American Pacific Islander Nurses Association and being on the board at the National Coalition of Ethnic Minority Nurses Association, working with you know the Black nurses, Hispanic nurses, Native Hawaiian, Philippine Nurses Associations, uh, we have been discussing this topic a lot. Um, you know, with what you said, there's this pop-up of associates of DEI everywhere. And how can we better support these group of leaders across the schools and colleges nursing? I think there are many success stories. I, I think what probably we haven't done enough is to have this collective of success stories and what I call more, you know, from the science perspective, dissemination implementation um, right. to really um, ha- either have a forum. And I think this is what at Insigna, the National Coalition of Ethnic Minority Nurses Association, that we are brainstorming and thinking, how can we bring these individuals all together, share success stories and provide readily available tools to, to do that in a larger scale? And also, I, I think it, it, it's going beyond having one person or one leadership position, which is critically important. Right. But it, it needs to be really integrated in everything we do. It is not just admission. It is not just, you know, the student body. You look at the faculty body as well to attract the students who will look up to them as role models. Absolutely. And I think at Florida State University College of Nursing, we're so proud to be the only college of nursing that's leading um, the currently funded two rounds of NIH first war is to support more diverse or underrepresented minority faculty and help them to be successful in health science research so that we are getting more faculty to, to be role models for the students. And also one of the biggest reasons um, that I was drawn to Florida State University is we had such a diverse college of medicine, like the most diverse <laughs> college of medicine in the US, but our college of nursing was not. Mm. And um, so I was trying to dig into what was happening. Um, our College of Medicine had 29 staff. There is a huge program called Stride all over the underrepresented minority serving counties in the state of Florida, developing these students when they were middle school. Mm. Support them all the way up to be a medical student. Right. And when I look at ours, I was like, well, let's look at our numbers and some of the responses I received were we did a pretty good job from those people who applied. We actually mirror, you know, whoever applied for our program, we did pretty good. We didn't, you know, bias or we, we our diversity numbers match what we admitted, you know, from the poll where they applied. Right. But the trick is, your applicant pool is not diverse. Diverse, right. And, that, and that's and, an issue with a lot of universities, right? It's your applicant pool 
that that is that lacks the diversity. So you're admitting a diverse population based on that, except it's not, it could be more diverse, right? Yes. So we dig into the whole way back to the applicant pool. That's what I share with you. You know, some people merely didn't have the resources to have that GPA, but they are excellent students who will be great nurses. So we look at that. And so we, even the pre-nursing students didn't belong to College of Nursing. They were the general undergraduate kind of study student. We reach out to that. We, it's just like, and we partner with medicine for all the middle school, high school programs. It's such a simple ask. And I got a yes the first day I met with the medicine dean. And when we had the students visiting our College of Nursing, all of them wanted to go into nursing. So you'll be amazed that whole group of 40, 50 students just in one visit, one cohort that we had, um, how many potential nurses are there? And they're all our diversity pool. And I think we, we really need to look into have we done enough to reach out Mm. to present nursing. I think um, uh, I really want to applaud you for your efforts. I don't think people have a good perception about the power of nursing and the great things that nurses are doing is so rewarding for those of us who love our profession. And there is a reason why we're the most trusted profession for over 17 years. But we haven't done enough to share that with I think where our potential pipeline are middle school, high school students. And I guess having that experience in a Hispanic survey institution, we did so well with those community colleges and just developing them, you know, we have over 60, 70% of the students were from the minority background and didn't surprise us because um, this is, you know, the pipeline we reach out to, we work with them, we have specific programs that pro- make things easy, just like my research topics. Right. As why would people adhere to something that is so complex? How can you make it easy? And then when I look into more of the diversity pieces, how can we create programs that are focusing on making nursing attractive and making for those populations that we would like to attract them to make it easy for them to get into nursing. Right, you take some of that uh, uh, um, complexity out of the system. Um, I think, you know, it, it's really like anything, any kind of application process that people, uh, you know, if it's too difficult, some people are just simply not going to go through that process uh, if they feel like it's, it's overwhelming them in any way, or they may feel the application process may give the perception of them not being qualified, even though they are qualified to uh, to uh, apply. Uh, so thank you for that. And, and, and by the way, you mentioned something with the uh, 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 with the middle school and high schoolers, and uh, I, you're not the first person that's brought that up. And I think that's an opportunity, that's a missed opportunity for so many of us uh, in the profession who are looking to diversify uh, the workforce. Um, what do you think the profession as a whole, uh, you know, like the American Nurses Associations of the world and the um, uh, other uh, nursing organizations, 
Uh, is that a missed opportunity for us to be utilizing and addressing not only membership of nursing, but also going beyond and developing campaigns uh, to attract those middle school and high schoolers? Because by the time they get into college, it's, I, wanna say, I don't want to say it's too late, but it, the pool is already less diverse by the time they get to college. So how do we, how do we, what do you think we need to do to address uh, those middle school and high schoolers? Should it be just institutions doing this on their own, or is does nursing as a whole have a have a play in this? All of it. Um, it, 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 it takes collective efforts, I think, and it takes um, you know, media plays an important role in this. And I I think kudos to the GNJ right. uh, nursing campaign. I think they did a fabulous job in supporting nursing. And um, so it takes both public and private sector and professional organizations and institutions, academic institutions, healthcare systems, and as we are all in this together, um, I think creating that shared agenda right. uh, across all sectors. So we, as we think about, there are structural issues, barriers, um, social determines health. Right. So all of those systematic structural barriers that we have to counter, um, then only one organization, yes, it would be important. <laughs> you know, <laughs> all of the nursing professional organizations can get together and, um, you know, ha have a great campaign. I think that's important, but it, it takes more, more than that too. Um, I, I think it just, no, no one thing would solve this uh, big puzzle. I, I really think that we're doing pretty well in creating this agenda. Now is the time to learn from those who are successful in a small way, make it bigger, and make sure efforts are coming from every angle. I, I agree. I agree. Um, so thank you for that. Um, so you are, you did men mention this already, you are the president of the Asian American Pacific Islander Nurses Association, and you do sit on the board of directors for the National Coalition of Ethnic Minority, Nur Minority Nurses Association. Um, can you share with us uh, the benefits of having such uh, such organizations in the nursing profession and uh, what is the what does the work entail of the association yes so i think you know having organizations that are dedicated to you know a certain like smaller racial or ethnic group basically are providing what i call a home uh, for nurses who can you know share similar cultural beliefs, may encounter similar barriers via language cultural, to have a place where they can freely share and also learn from each other and kind of have this unified voice together um, to really speak to some of the issues that, that exist in our society. And I think um, uh, from the Lloyd Cav event and uh, to, you know, the anti-Asian uh, hate um, 
just kind of there has been this huge stress uh, mm. amongst all of the nurses that are stressed out because they're trying to save lives and they're at the front line putting their lives in danger to support others. Well, in the meantime, there are groups of people who are putting more stress in this group. And I, I, I really view the role of APINA and ANSIMNA as a big group, providing this unified voice and group for people together, uh, not only professionally, but also to support each other at challenging times that we receive tremendous support from our uh, Black nurses, Hispanic nurses, um, Native uh, Hawaiian, uh, Native American nurses group, uh, when, you know, we really need to uh, look into when the uh, anti-Asian racism, all of those events that are happening with the stress that are putting in AAPI nurses. And also I feel like um, Apina and Insemna are also a, a great team player with our American Nurses Association, American Academy of Nursing, and many of the, for example, the National Commission uh, for Racism led by American Nurses Association were primarily led by the leaders at the National Coalition of African Minority Nurses Association and across um, you know, the different organizations. I feel like it's providing that additional home and support that is needed um, that are addressing issues that are bound to a specific group of nurses that really need to pay more attention in order to get them more engaged or um, counter some of the systematic barriers for these particular groups. So that's where I see the value. One is being a, creating a platform for people to connect. Um, the second is that providing that unified voice to have this all the collective wisdom for the things that are happening across the community where they are part of the family and part of the home to support their growth and success. That's the diversity that we're talking about. Don't just put them, give them the opportunity to get into the door. You have to hold their hands sometimes and support their success. And I see these professional organizations provide a role in that. Great. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, yeah, I think the from a from a perspective of nursing organizations, there's so many different organizations we can be part of. Um, yeah. But uh, some of the some of the organizations, uh, such as AAPI, I think is is uh, and the Black Nurse Association, Hispanic Nurse Association, I think they provide they they do provide uh, a tre tremendous amount of support, uh, which I think uh, may sometimes get lost when we just say American Nurses Association, but it's good to know that, you know, these organizations also work hand in hand, uh, <clears throat> although independent, uh, they work hand in hand with the American Nurses Association with to, with some shared agenda items. Um, so I think th th those are key and I appreciate the, uh, I appreciate the organizations being there. Uh, <clears throat> now, from a perspective uh, of um, your role uh, in academia and having a national platform, um, what have you seen um, 
as possibly a barrier uh, for, for, for the communities that you serve uh, as you look for the future of nursing? What are some of the barriers that you, you have encountered and how do you navigate those barriers? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we have big wings since I joined the university and the College of Nursing. Uh, so everything has been great. And I feel like I've finished my five-year or seven-year goals within a short year. Oh, uh, nice. <laughs> um, really have significantly expanded the program to address nursing shortage. There has been huge support from the state of Florida, huge success in our research efforts. And, you know, the diversity for the student pipeline, I feel like everything we're doing is positioning us to be prepared for the future of healthcare. Um, of course, my um, area of research, digital health, I, I see that the future of healthcare is digital and why I am kept emphasizing the high touch, um, high tech care approach is I do believe that nurses are in the best position to lead technology development and implementation. We know what patients need and we know how to make the process easier for our patients and our partnering doctors and other healthcare professionals. I think um, in terms of barrier, um, it's always going to be there. Uh, and I think um, for a lot of institutions, as I look across um, you know, all the schools of nursing or colleges of nursing. Uh, I think to expand the program, we need more funding. We need mm -hmm. to provide a much better work-life balance for our faculty in both academic settings and also in clinical settings, right? right? right. Talk about nurse burnout, nurse well-being. I think nurses are the worst when it comes to self-care. Because 100%. <laughs> all of us have this mindset that we're in this profession to serve others, to help others. We are always on the bottom. And I think from my perspective, as a leader now in nursing, I, I really would like to make sure we, we have programs and we, we have the, the culture. Uh, you know, at the Robert Johnson Foundation, we talk about culture of health. What is a culture of health? It's back to my research. Whatever is easier. People right. will naturally just do it. Um, that is the culture of health and wellness. And it takes leaders who truly believe in it to build that infrastructure for the organization to be a healthy organization that really care about employee. And I think I, I mostly take pride for myself is I, I lead with my heart and I lead with care. And I think we, we are here to support others. And I think there are many institutional and systematic barriers that I feel like it's so important that I take a leadership role because I know exactly what needs to happen to make sure my students, my faculty and partnering healthcare systems, how can we push the envelope and make sure that nurses are being valued and being respected and will not have to experience any workplace violence or, or any of you know, structural racism 
when we look at things both from pipeline to academic programs and when they graduate going to healthcare systems to be a practicing nurse or nurse practitioners, nurse educator, nurse scientist. So if anything, I think there is, there's always not enough funding. There's mm. always not enough nurses. And I think we really need to be creative as we look at addressing nursing shortage and nurse well-being using a team-based a team approach and look at technology development differently. Don't just survey nurses. Ask nurses, what do you think? What do you like? That's not okay. Yeah. We, we need to be the game of co-designing, co-developing with engineers, computer scientists, informaticians. There's no way that we can avoid that coming, but I think having nurses in the core development team and being in leadership positions will certainly help. That's why I'm so passionate about developing the next generation of nurses who are equipped with these skills um, so that it's not just one or two nurses that are pushing the envelope. It's all of us right. and making sure advocating for the best care for the patients, but also don't make my nurses spend 50, 60% of their time in front of a computer. That is not okay. Yeah. Um, we spent all this training. Sure. We know how to take care of patients. And now when we go, there has been reports, and this is real, it's not even fake data, especially in our emergency room and others, 50, 60% of the time for a nurse is in front of a computer. So how can we shorten that time? How can we reduce this complex documentation that is needed so that we put our nurses back to the bedside to provide the high touch care for our patients. So I would say lots of quick wins, but still lots of barriers where we need quality, quantity, leadership amongst our nurses and kind of the concept of being open and being what we call equity minded right. to, to push the envelope on everything that we do. Great. Thank you for that. Um, I'm going to put you on a little bit on the spot, uh, even though I promise I wouldn't. Um, you are, you are again, you are in a leadership position at a university and you did bring up uh, um, the health of our faculty, um, especially new faculty that are coming into academia. Uh, the pay is questionable across the board. I mean, some places pay decent other places not as much um, and then the expectation of these huge multi-million dollar grants and and like I don't know, like six to ten publications a year and all of this stuff on these brand new faculty that are coming into the system with this 10-year kind of a, a concept hanging over their heads um, how can we build a friendlier academic environment where everything isn't or, or or we better support the faculty that are coming in where it doesn't feel like this daunting task that is not achievable. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think 
it's so important. Like when we talk about American Academy of Nursing, we look at the impact of Mm -hmm. what a nurse or non-nurse makes to nursing. Right. Is NIH funding or the number of publication, the criteria? No. So uh, I think then thinking back about your question, I think there are different roles that faculty um, coming into academia and they play. And I kept telling my faculty that all of you are equal in front of the dean. And there are faculty who are not even in tenure track, but they're carrying a critical mission of the college teaching our practice. If there are, you know, um, practice initiatives within the academic institution. And I think specifically for tenure track, um, part of the program that NIH first program that I mentioned to you is we want to make sure if uh, the innovative model that we're testing can be uh, a quick win that we can widely disseminate uh, down the role is that to have, we all sort of have done it in a small scale in different ways, to have the career development, the faculty orientation, but mentoring. I think those are critically important. I am not a big NIH researcher. I don't have six to eight publications every year, um, but I, I had successfully made it <laughs> to be who I am today. <laughs> um, so I, I think we really need to look at different impact nurses can bring to the table. Of course, if you are hired to carry out a certain mission, right. making sure we have the infrastructure, the training, the resources, the staff support, um, and also the um, just the institutional culture that will support their success is important. And I think mentoring is a key component of it. I would not go into any program without knowing if the institution will support me or have the right mentors, either locally or nationally or globally that can support my growth. And I think that that's important for junior faculty. Um, And there are so many options nowadays, given the shortage. You also need to look at the institution, whether that's the best fit for you. There are institutions that are not every institution is the same. Uh, I would I would say that the example you quoted probably apply for certain institutions, but definitely not the majority or right. not all. So I think there are like, I think finding the fit um, and there are institutions who are far more advanced in certain areas than others. I think finding the institution that is the best and perfect fit for you are, are critical for junior faculty seeking positions right now. Right. We need more faculty, but if you have a passion in certain area, you need to make sure that institution can make you successful. Sometimes what I try to tell candidates, I can make you successful here. Um, You know, with your qualities, with your training, with the resources that we have. And I think that's when I look at it, you know, we advocate for faculty salary, battle it every day, but we collective work together, you know, with the state, uh, all the deans come together. And I think we are making strides in a lot of the areas. And I, I think that's, 
I'm proud of what we have accomplished and done so far. And I think the AACM, American Association of College of Nursing, has an annual survey that really helps also, you know, bring in faculty salary up and up. So we're not comparing nursing faculty salary to, I wouldn't call other professions out, but it's just, it should be for nursing, right? Right. Um, it needs to be comparable market? to what nurses can make uh, on the service side. Exactly. So those are the battles I think, yes, people yeah. like me who are deans should <laughs> be gone. And that's our job. And I think, um, you know, if there's any dean who has difficulty doing that, we certainly have lessons to share. And uh, I think it's getting there. And I think we're doing better and better based on what I have seen. Um, but it again, it's that dissemination. But I see when a few institutions make initial success, then bigger group will follow. And then eventually, right? Like if right. you need to have your nursing program survive and everybody else is offering a different salary, then you will have to. So whatever university president and provost will have to. So I, I think it's it's a collective effort and I think um, works are in process. And we have seen progress, um, you know, just across the board. Great. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I want to be cognizant of your time. Uh, I want to give you the floor for anything else you want to share uh, with the, with our audience. And uh, um. Yes. So I, I think I forgot to mention, as I was thinking about this RM Mentor podcast, and I have been really standing on the shoulder of so many giants who have made me kind of be the leader of today. And I, I think I was so fortunate to have quite a lot of leadership development programs in my career. I think even as a junior faculty, I my time was quite protected. I was in the Robert Johnson Foundation Nurse Faculty Scholar Program. Um, so that gave me protected time for research, leadership development with school deans, um, but after that, I was in a one on interprofessional education, um, Josiah Macy Foundation, um, um, Macy Faculty Scholars Program, and I've been in Health and Aging Policy Fellows Program, and now in the National Academy of Medicine's Emerging Leader Program. I feel like all of these programs just provided tremendous mentors. Uh, and the network, the peer mentors and senior mentors that really have been the role models. I was doing my talk in the American Academy of Nursing. I was really a shy person. I would never imagine I would be a dean any, in any imagination. But I feel like having mentors along the way that you watch them all the time, you want to be like them one day right. it, it's so important so I, I think I want to emphasize I'm available for people who you know who can find shared interest or things that I can help along the way I think mentoring has no boundaries I have physicians and others mentored me and I just think this is a perfect time for me to say thank you and to share my appreciation and I would like to pay it forward to Make sure, you know, if I can be of any help for anyone that my experience can support, I want to make sure that I'm available and accessible for people to grow. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you so much for that. 
um, and uh, and um, for for those who may not have had the opportunity to get into a Robert Wood Johnson's Foundation's fellowship program or any of those other fellowships program, what do you think is a good first step for them in finding a mentor? Because for me, it's I, I'm you know although I people always ask me, I'm I'm a super introvert. I think I share that with anybody that I meet. But it's important for me to step out of my comfort zone and reach out to people. Um, what do you think is a good first step? Uh, we'll we'll keep it from a maybe faculty perspective or a service side perspective for a nurse that's listening to this podcast. What's a good first step for them if they've never had a mentor, uh, a fish like a formal mentor? Yes, I was a severe introvert too. <laughs> so uh, I I think. What I would recommend is join a professional organization where you can consider as a home to you and find people who you you feel free to share. And that's why I, I mentioned a Pina or an or Simna or anyone that you can find that connection and find that you have this group of people who you can speak freely with. And naturally you will find people who will be the best in where you will like or where you aspire to be or become and reach out to them. I have people reach out to me on LinkedIn and ask me to be a mentor. And I say yes. So um, I, I think there are different ways. You, I, I think a successful mentoring relationship that I have had so far, always I have taken the initiative. Right. Believe me, all of my mentors are so busy. I have learned to write in one sentence or two words for everything that I communicate with them or, or ways to how I get my mentors to support what I need. And I think, um, you know, a lot of people will complain, well, I'm not getting enough support or mentoring. I would say that it is also on you sometimes. <laughs> to take the initiative and reach out to people and the worst you can get is a no and you reach out to the next, which may be a much better fit for you. So, so I, I think it's just um, go out of your comfort zone. Sometimes it's a good thing. Um, it doesn't matter if you're an introvert, just look at me. I couldn't even speak at all <laughs> in front of any media when they were first training me um, public media. So if, I can do it. All of you can do it. All right. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And yes, it is important for people to reach out and, uh, and, uh, and, and it's okay. I always like to tell people it's okay if they, if they get a no, because I, I, I always actually say I, I sometimes not always, but sometimes appreciate that. No, because I know they don't have time for me and I don't want to be in a in that relationship if I'm not going to be benefiting from it. And that's just hard on both, on both parties. So, so when you do get a yes, it is, I always put the driver, put my mentees in the driver's seat because I need you to drive the, the aim and push me or ask me or whatever you need. Uh, because I've got my plate full too. <laughs> and I have mentees and I have mentors. So it's good. It's a good relationship. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for uh, for for your time and being on the show. Uh, we have been listening to Dr. Jing Wang. Uh, she's a dean and professor of the Florida State University College of Nursing, and she's the president of the Asian American Pacific Islander Nurses Association. Thank you, and we will talk again really soon. Great. Thank you so much for having me.
You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Tayeb. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com. That's www.aliartayeb.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.